This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Check this out. It is free. No, I'm serious. It's free, 100%. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor then distributes that podcast for you, and you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from that podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. And we are back on Lauer After Hours. This is Mike Ryan Fan Account, and today I am delighted to bring you our conversation with Jason Fitz. We are very excited to have on with us Jason Fitz, a man of many talents, host of First Take Your Take on ESPN Radio and soon to be reunited once more with the commish, Sarah Spain, on Spain and Fitz, airing 7 to 9 p.m. starting August 17th. And that's just what he does for ESPN. For years, uh, Jason was a classically trained Grammy Award-winning fiddle player out of Nashville before deciding to redirect his passion into the sports world. Uh, Jason Fitz, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, ESPN's number one fan podcast, uh, Lauer After Hours. Appreciate having you on. Um, just before we get started, uh, you get to rub it in Gojo's hairy face that we had you on before we had him on. So you have reached the peak of stardom and fame. Congratulations. Uh, well, look, you know, I've got to rub it into his hairy face because can't rub it into his hairy head. Right. Like, That's I think true. you guys started with the better looking of the tandem. <laughs> you know, he's a, but he's a lot bigger than I am. So note, I'm in my, my house. So I'm yeah. much more anxious to just, you know, talk any kind of smack to, Mike, since uh, he can't touch me here, you know, yes, he's absolutely. much bigger than I am. But, you know, that's, that's what my um, people do. Little people, little people talk and big people back it up. That's why right. I need Mike with me all the time. That, that's why the nickname Keyboard Warrior is, uh, is very apt. You know, as long as you're not within someone's reach, you can talk as much, much smack as you want to, for sure. Um, so uh, just yesterday, uh, the new ESPN radio lineup uh, was released. And um, as you know, I saw you tweeted out um, something about one of the big names that was not on the list anymore. And obviously, you've worked with uh, this family uh, pretty closely for the past few years. Uh, Mike Bullock Sr. We were hoping, wondering maybe uh, if you had like a good Mike Bullock Sr. story you could share with us. No, of course. Um, So, you know, Sr. is part of the reason I do what I do. And Anybody that's ever seen Junior and I together and they talk about, you know, whatever, the chemistry that we've had in working together, it's because Junior's genuinely one of my best friends. And, you know, I, I love that family through and through and, and making the transition to Connecticut 
the Golik family has been a huge part of what's made that uh, that transition feel sort of real and normal. So I can't say enough about them, but I'll never forget, you know, a lot of people don't realize my first work with ESPN was on ESPNU. And it was a tiny show on college football with Mike Golik Jr., me, and Elika Sadegi. Now, there's two important things uh, I'll tell you. One is the first time I ever met Mike, I didn't know him at all. We'd never met each other. He was in the green room at ESPNU in Charlotte. And as I walked into the room, the first thing I hear him say is, and that's why I think taking showers naked as a team helps build camaraderie. That's <laughs> it's the first thing I ever heard come out of his mouth. He, the man believes that team showers builds camaraderie. I, I don't know. I don't know. But, Maybe um, that, well, you know, he, he would know. Like, that's the difference between an athlete and a musician. Like, he and I have joked, you know, guys at Notre Dame, they just walk in there and take a shower. When you're on the road in the country music world and you're playing arenas, you're in those same bathrooms. But we always had them bring in what they call pipe and draping. Like, we want curtains, put a trash can out there. I don't want anybody <laughs> walking in while I'm taking a shower. So, right. uh, but my, my favorite senior story, to be serious for a minute, um, was after that show. And it was December. We'd finished our run. And I, I flew up to Bristol. And I, I flew myself up to Bristol because I wanted to meet the bosses at ESPN and just see if they liked what I was doing because ESPNU was down in Charlotte and you never saw them. And I, so I was walking through the halls and didn't know anybody. And uh, I saw a senior and he actually pulled me aside. And he's like, hey, I watched this show that you and Mike did and you've got a lot of potential. You're really good at this. And for me, I was like, holy crap. I can't believe that senior <laughs> even knows my name. You know, yeah. and, and Mike, of course, has joked since then. He's like, oh, yeah, dad never really watched it. He slept through it. But either way, <laughs> the fact that this senior knew my name uh, was incredible. And, you know, anybody that's watched Golik and Wingo, I've had a lot of run there over the last couple of years. And the nuance that senior, like, you just, you watch somebody work that's a legend like he is, and you get better in the process. And that's one of the things, a number of times, you know, I, I was reminded of the fact that I'm still relatively new to this business. And so there are things that hit you that you don't see coming, like little transitions or little moments. And you don't know what the hell you're doing. And we would go to a break and seniors just he's still the master looking over and say, hey, next time this happens, know this. And it's like, holy cow, like I've gotten more in-game coaching from right. senior. It's it's no different than being in a band or playing in a playing on a team with somebody that's been there and seen it all. It just prepares you better. So I'm better at my job today because I've gotten to work so much with my coworkers. That's fantastic. I, I play music myself and the I've I've uh tried to play with people who have gotten very good playing alone uh and, and practicing their instrument, but then uh playing in a room with people like taking those cues from each other, that that uh synergy is something that's invaluable. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. We're going to uh, we're going to start with uh, our guy Asom. Uh, he's got a, a few questions about hosting dynamics. Uh, Asom, take it away, man. It's Asom from the basements of Chicago. Glad to see you, man. Man, I'm. You know what? I've since the day Sarah and I started, you've tweeted the show, and I can't tell. Like it's real that we go into break sometimes. We're like, oh, that's really cool. Or did you see this? Asom sent this. Like that. That is real conversation. Like hosts see that, and like I know. You know, everybody has different social media platforms. A lot have bigger than I do. But when when I'm tweeted during shows, I really I want to look and see sort of what's hitting and what's not hitting and what's getting reaction. And the number of times that you've sent out an article like, did you guys see? We've all said, how the hell did you see that? We didn't. So, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's good to finally see it in person. ish. Well, I appreciate that. As I wipe my tears away here, uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to um, tweeting at you more during Spain and Fitz coming up soon. My question revolves around your range at ESPN. There's so many shows we can talk about 
fantasy football marathon, first take, etc. But I'd like to hear your comments on the preparation that goes behind a serious show that you host outside the lines that I've seen you host, and as opposed to hosting also a serious show, but fun as well, the NFL Draft with Mina Kimes and Dominique Foxworth, which is just a highlight for me every year. Oh, thanks. I'll say this. The goofier the show, the more work I put into it. And that sounds weird to a lot of people. But the thing for me is knowing that I came from a non-traditional background, what I never want somebody to do is think that I haven't done the work. I haven't done the prep. I haven't read or or watched or studied. So for me, I feel like when you you talk about the NFL draft, and I've, I've said this a million times, Mina, Mike, Dominique Field, myself, we do as much prep as Trey and Lewis Riddick and all the guys that you see on TV. You know, in fact, I'd argue a lot of times the digital work we do is tougher because we don't have commercials. So you never have a reset. If something happens on the fly, and that's part of why the digital work that I've done, I I prep twice as hard for because when stuff goes wrong and it will go wrong, you don't have a way. Or if you're caught with your pants down, you don't know who a prospect is. You don't have a note on it. You're stuck. I mean, you don't have a way for somebody. We don't have the same staffing. We don't have, you know, 30 people sitting behind the scenes that can hand you a piece of paper and you know, the rankings reaction is a show that Michael Luke Jr. and I have made very successful on the digital side in, in the college football world. And what's funny about that is, again, no commercials. And there's been several times that our comms, our communication with the, the home area at Bristol has gone down. So I've just had to take my ear out and I'm looking over the clock and I'm thinking, OK, I know here's where we're going to go. And that's what happens. And but I will say this. The funny thing to me is I'll never forget the day I was on OTL and we were prepped for three guests. and we tried to go to the first guest and for some reason they couldn't hear us. We couldn't hear them. So in my ear on live TV, they quickly say, go to the next one. Tried to go to the next one. Couldn't hear it. Nothing was working. And I was on OTL and I actually looked at the camera and said, guys, this is the beauty of live TV. We're going to take a break and see if we can figure it out. And that's what we did. And when we got to commercial, it was like, you handled that beautifully. I said, look, chaos is the one thing I'm used to from the digital side. So uh, the the other answer though, to your question, and this is sort of a in the weeds brainiac answer, but um, I think one thing for me is that every medium you work on the first day I ever did radio in Nashville, a guy came up to me and said, your job in radio isn't to talk about what you're passionate about. It's to talk about what the broadest set of your audience cares the most about. And that's a very distinct difference. And it's a difference I, t- I take seriously, but you also have to be aware of what your audience wants in every different show. So like Spain and Fitz has a much different audience than Golik and Wingo has, but even above me on that, the night that Alex Smith was traded from the Chiefs to the Redskins, Spain and Fitz blew up the whole show. We got all these guests on. We were live. We were going with it. I walked two buildings over after that show just uh, to record sports on Snapchat that night, which I at the time was heavily involved in. I walked in and said, guys, I got pages of notes on Alex Smith. And our producers just looked at me and said, our our audience doesn't care about Alex Smith. And so, well, it's a playoff quarterback. Of course they do. They didn't. And the funny thing is we did that episode. We led led with the Lonzo Ball highlighting. I came in the next night for a snap and I said, show me the metrics because you get those every day. You can see where the kids flip through. And they were right. The minute we got to Alex Smith, everybody clicked through. Nobody watched it. So – You know, I think the trickiest part of our jobs that a lot of people don't realize when you host on multiple mediums is that every show requires its own set of prep. Every show requires its own mindset. And you can't just take what you did on radio and say it's going to matter. You got to be willing for in my case last fall, I'd be willing to put in all the work to do college game day digitally with Maria, knowing that, you know, with Maria Taylor, 
knowing that we were going to do that on Saturday and we weren't going to talk about a lick of that Monday through Friday on Golik and Wingo. So that's, I think, the hardest part of the prep world. Love it all, Fitz. And again, thanks for joining us tonight, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. All right. It's tough preparing for these things. I cannot even come close to wrapping my head around the amount of prep work it takes to do uh, the, particularly the number of gigs that you host at ESPN. What I, I know I, I mentioned uh, your, the show that you have now and you're going, uh, you're going to be reunited with the commish as she's known to Levitt's art fans. Um, but uh, what, what other uh, uh, digital platforms or like or properties do you, are you involved with? So essentially anything that happens, Oh, by the way, uh, my Raiders cup is filled with iced coffee. Every time I uh-huh. do something like this, and somebody's <laughs> like, what's in the cup? Iced right. coffee. Uh, and no, nothing wild. Um, so anything that happens digitally, and when I say digitally, I mean uh, YouTube, Facebook, uh, Twitter, the ESPN app. We have right. an entire department that runs those shows. And anything that happens in the college football landscape, uh, I'm, I'm a part of. So rankings okay. reaction, uh, presuming we have a college football season, we expect that college game day will come back last season I did game day digitally. It was a pre-game day show with David Pollock and Maria Taylor before every game day from every campus every Saturday. So wow. uh, that's a consistent for me. The NFL draft is a consistent for me digitally. Um, if there's NFL work digitally, when we have those rights and opportunities, I'm usually a part of those broadcasts as well. Rankings gotcha. reaction, like I said, with Michael Luke Jr. during the playoff time. Is there basically anything other than hoop streams, which is one of our biggest digital shows, but it's in the NBA space. And I love the NBA, but I I also believe that, frankly, there are people like there's so many mouths to feed. I believe like at some point you have to let people be experts where they can be experts. So uh, hoop streams is something I haven't been really involved with that much. But anything else that happens digitally, I'm usually on. Uh, And then I've also done a lot with college basketball, like raps and halftime shows and uh, some highlight work there. And then before OTL uh, went away, as we know it, uh, I, I hosted OTL a bunch. Uh, this week, I'll actually make my return in the parting shots form. So OTL around Sports Center is something that I'll be involved with. And, you know, basically the way that ESPN is structured, and you can see this across the, the landscape, for more and more of us, it feels like the company wants utility knives. How many different properties can you be on? How hard are you willing to work? And, you know, I, I remember sitting there game day watching you know, Herbie and Maria and everybody going from game to game to game, sitting there saying, how did they prep three games this week? <laughs> you know, and I look at that and that's, that's a reminder. And I, I constantly say too, like the, the most famous of all of us at ESPN making the most money, Stephen A, and he's still outworking all of us. So if Stephen right. A's outworking <laughs> me, then I got to find another gear. So, you know, that's the way, the way I look at it is I got 24 hours a day. I need six hours of sleep. Fill me on the other 18 with work. I hear you. I hear you. Well, as, as Levitard says, ESPN's ethos is how hard can we work you? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they make you earn every dollar, I'm sure. But, you know, yeah. I, I will say, like, uh, not to cut you off, but I'll say sure. that, like, for me, that works. Like, I came from a music world where you put out your first single in country music and you're immediately going to do the fair and festival season, right? And what people don't realize is that fairs and festivals means you're taking every just awful gig known to man like you're still playing on the back of tractor trailers in the you know whatever the wichita county fair you know and you're doing (laughs) all of these things on the way up and on the way down in your career and like record release week is the most intense thing you'll ever experience because you'll do three or four tv shows in a day and then still play a show at night and then you'll do like a promo event to try and get a a radio station to to play your singles so i look at all of this i tell people constantly like i'm at the fairs and festival stage of my career like I've had a little bit of success, which I'm really proud of, and it, but there's so much more to go that it's like, all right, 
load me up. What other shows are we doing? Yeah. Come on. I hear you. I hear you. All right. We're going to switch gears here a little bit. We have a, uh, a Halloween super fan uh, who's part of this podcast. Oh, man. Uh, I know this is uh, not a visual medium, but the smile that just went across his face when I, I brought up Halloween. Uh, Pamela, at Halloween Basic on Twitter, you has some Halloween questions for you. Okay. I'm ready. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. When do you start and how long does it take you to decorate, prep, all that stuff for Halloween? So that's a great question. And for anyone that hasn't seen on social, I've usually put it out there, but uh, we do uh, scenes from different horror movies throughout the course of the entire front lawn. And so we have mannequins and you know props and all these things that we display outside. We start the planning usually in June uh, where we start mapping out what we think we want and where, what, what, what horror movies, we keep a list, like what horror movies have we represented? What have we represented too much? What's next in the rotation? So the build starts usually at the end of August. Um, and that's not, that's been twofold, two reasons for that. One, September starts football season. So once football season starts, it's virtually impossible for me to get any time in Nashville. And then two, it's really become something the community in and around Nashville gravitates to. So we end up much like at Christmas where people drive around to see the Christmas lights that happens for our house for about a month and a half where people just constantly drive by to see the Halloween display. So it's important to us to have it up long enough for families to get enjoyment out of it because that's frankly a big part of why we do it because we love scary movies. Okay. I have one more quick if they'll let me ask it. Come on. All right. What is the most amount you've spent on a costume or a decoration? I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know. I, the, the most elaborate costume I ever did, I did Frankenstein, which everybody's done, but I did it on drywall stilts. So I made myself eight feet tall and uh, that was the most elaborate costume I ever did. I don't know that it was particularly expensive, but realistically what happens for us is the weekend before Halloween, never Halloween weekend, the weekend before we throw a monster party and it always ends up being a hundred and something of our friends and their friends and everybody comes together and everybody's in costume. So the funny thing is, I don't know that the costumes are that expensive, but once you start feeding and drinking a hundred and something maniacs that have all had way too much by the end of the night, it's amazing. It's thousands of dollars just for the party every year, just to try and, and, and that's even with me being like, look, I'm going to make spaghetti for three days and put it in the oven. doesn't matter. You, you can't, <laughs> the bottles of alcohol are amazing, but we do everything like we make every year has a different list of signature drinks that are all themed after whatever movies are represented. There's like a shot wheel from different movies. And like, so it's very, the, the most of the cost comes from the mannequins, the decor for outside. And then like a, a lot of it, you can value shop. Like we decided we wanted to do a scene from the ring where we had somebody crawling out of a TV. And so we went on Craigslist and found somebody that was giving away a TV. So then you just find a buddy to help you haul a TV. Or like we did a scene from the exorcist where a body was hanging. Like it looked like it was levitating. So we had to hang it off the tree but we found somebody was giving away a bed. So we were able to like put a bed in our front lawn. So we get a little help on the, uh, it's amazing how many people are giving junk away that we use for Halloween. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so much. Oh no, thanks. I love talking about it. <laughs> Me too. In fact, maybe we should start a Halloween pod. Just a uh, thought. All in, oh. all in. I'm all in for that. Yes. Well, uh, Levitart fans, I, you've got competition there, obviously uh, with legs. Uh, he's, I mean, he's legs, kinda... if you're into like going to spirit <laughs> Halloween and just buying what's already made legs does Whoa. a great job of it. I've seen the display. It's really nice. Uh -huh. You know, I could go to my local Halloween express and 
do that too, but you want to have a little creativity. When he's got a shed in the back backyard all year full of mannequins, then we'll talk. Other than that, legs and I, we got battle. We got beat. Okay, you you heard it here. The gauntlet has been thrown down. Uh, man, okay. he's a great dude. Though. Spicy, he is a great spicy dude. take. <laughs> all right, real quick, we've got uh, our our. Uh, uh, I don't, she needs a proper nickname. She's our, our Aussie, uh, from, from Australia. Uh, Morgan, are you there? Exactly. Do you have a quick question? Yeah, I'm here. Maybe I'm the foreign correspondent. Perfect. Um, Perfect. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to know what would be your desert Island album and you can only have one. Uh, songs in the key of life. Stevie wonder would be my desert or live at the Fillmore Aretha. Um, That's not how it works. Jason. I said one. <laughs> I know that's a tough one. Uh, to, to, today, I say songs in the key of the live. I don't know though. I think the best live record that's ever been done is Aretha Franklin live at the Fillmore, and go back and listen to some of the arrangements on that, and it is it's incredible. Uh, so that one is oh, it's, but no, I'm gonna go songs in the key of life. That is that is my um, fantastic. That choice. is my pick. And can I now? Do you have another question? I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. But did you have another question? Oh no no no, go for it, go for it. Whatever. Well, I just had. To, I had to tell your co- correspondent my two favorite Australia stories because I've been lucky Please. enough in my life to go there a few times on tour. The first time I was playing with the country act that had a bunch of hits in the early 2000s, a writer named Phil Vassar. Phil's so a great human being. And um, he had been asked to play this uh, CMC Rocks the Snowies, like or whatever it was called. It was like some big festival in Australia. So no exaggeration. He used his miles because I love the guy, but he's cheap. So he used his miles to get all the band over to Australia. So we mm. were middle seats dr- flying from L.A. to Australia on like whatever normal airline middle seats were cramped <laughs> in the whole way. I'm, I fly between these people like no, at the time there was no entertainment. Nothing. Nothing worked. We landed. We got in a van. We drove eight hours. We got to the venue. We unloaded our stuff. We played the show. In the middle of the show, he tried to just bring in like midnight oil. Uh, how do you sleep when the bed's on? Like he just started the song and presumed we'd all know it. And then it like just stopped the song. He's like, my band sucks. Great guy. But it was a, it was a moment because none of us knew the song. And then we got back in the van, went back to the airport. And we flew immediately home. I was in the air longer than I was in Australia oh the my first God. time I was in there. But that's wow. almost like my second story was I went over there with the band Perry and we did two, we had back-to-back days. And the first day we were at a sanctuary, like where we got to hang out with koalas and like, I got to hold one, by the way, I think they're my spirit animal because uh, I found out that the eucalyptus really just keeps them stoned the entire time. Not saying anything, I'm just saying like they're my spirit animal. But uh, the other part- they also, have, they also have chlamydia. Uh, never mind. no longer my spirit animal. But the funniest thing was like at the, at the reserve, I got to like hang out with these kangaroos, right? Like, so I'm playing with the kangaroos. I'm like, this is great. The next day we were in Sydney playing a show and we go to a restaurant and wherever we went, I'm an adventurous eater. So I was like, I don't know, feed me whatever, like I have to eat. And so they served me kangaroo. And I was like, this feels really weird. Like yesterday I played with the kangaroo today. I ate a kangaroo. I did not feel good about it, but Australia is amazing. Yeah. We're brutal. We, that's our national animal. We don't care. It's still not. <laughs> Hey, kudos. Um, good on you. I am sorry. I'm sorry that you had to go to Sydney. Apologize. Oh, I, I loved it. <laughs> Australia is one of the like if I if I could just get a week and go anywhere in the world I've ever been, but go as a tourist this time, Australia. I think Australia would be at the top of my list. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's a cool spot. Come on down, right. everybody. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank Bye. you. All right, we are going uh, next to uh, our Wisconsinite uh, coach Debro. Um, she's got a sports question for you, coach. Hey, how's it going? Nice awesome, to meet you. Man. 
Nice to meet you too. Where in Wisconsin? Uh, I'm right between Madison and the Dells. Awesome. That's a that those are great areas. I really like. I, I I'm in a fanatic of Wisconsin, so I I love that place. It's awesome. Really? Why? Uh, well, it all, like I'm sorry. I feel like I'm doing a music pod. I keep bringing it back to music, but country country <laughs> music does really well in Wisconsin, and the Dells has a great festival. Madison is a, like the, the campus shows there were spectacular. My favorite restaurant in the country is the Calderon Club, which is down in downtown Milwaukee. Summerfest, like I've, I've spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. Like every the people are phenomenal. Everybody's super nice. The weather's always nice when I've been there. Luckily, I haven't been there in winter. Uh, you know, yeah, I, uh, I, I I'm I'm a quiet Badger fan. I just don't tell me like I, like I don't have a rooting interest, but I'll go for the Badgers. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, that makes me proud. Okay, so my sports question. What is your favorite sound in sports? Thinking wow. like, yeah, I'll let you just do it. That's a great question. There is something impactful to me about hearing the offensive defensive line smack up against each other from the sideline. And I think that's one of the coolest things, you know, every year for three straight years, I've been able to cover the national championship game and college football is my favorite sport to cover. Although it's not my favorite sport, which is funny because I actually, I'm an NFL guy. I don't have a favorite college team. So I never, I, I don't care who wins or loses every week. That's why I love covering it. So the opportunity to be at the national championship game the last couple of years is always this surreal moment. I go out three or four hours before the game starts. I just walk across the field and I have this holy, holy hell, the work is worth it moment every year. But I think when you're standing right there next to everybody and you actually hear the pop and the explosion that comes with the snap, when you watch it on TV, I just don't think that that's ever picked up in the right way because that it says so much about where a game truly is decided. Like there's this moment of who's the aggressor that you really can feel when you stand there and you hear the way that collision happens. So to me, I think it was eye-catching when I first heard it. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for the question. That was great. Great answer. Great answer. All right. We're going to uh, bring it back to music. We're going to go out to Dr. K. He's got a, a question about fans and uh, country music. Dr. K. Yeah. You can hear me. Hey, Dr. Yeah. K. Oh, sweet. There we go. Hey man. Nice to meet you. Man. Appreciate you doing this. Thanks man. Oh yeah. Um, I just wondered who was your influence uh, being a fiddle player? Like who was your biggest influence? Uh, going, that's, growing up that's a great question um and to be transparent my influences didn't lie in country music um i grew up a classical kid and so when i was four years old i started playing the violin my, nobody in my family was musical my mom got a piano she wanted to learn she was terrible awful she got lessons in the house and i would crawl up on the bench and by ear i was playing what the teacher was trying to show her how to play when i was four so i was a little kid in vegas they took me to unlv i started taking violin lessons i was going to take piano lessons but they didn't have any piano players available so or piano teachers available. So they said, why don't you put him in violin for you know six months? And that way you can at least start learning to read music. I was terrible. You, I started Suzuki, which a lot of little kids do. You're supposed to go through a book in six months. It took me a year and a half to get through book one. And everybody that I, everybody in my life was like, oh, my God, stop playing. This isn't for you. Let's well, By the time I was eight, I practiced eight hours a day. I got into Juilliard when I was 10. I played Carnegie Hall when I was 10. So I was a, I was a classical musician, and I thought that that was going to be my life was classical music. And then I realized in high school that, the, you know, you didn't have to practice as much in girls like singers better. So I started singing like the, the musicals and stuff like that. And that's a, that was a transition for me. And when I, the band I, I sang, the guys I sang with in high school got offered a, a record deal with RCA to do like a, a RCA to do like a pop you know, boys to men gone white, basically a project <laughs> in the late nineties. And 
we got signed and we thought we were going to be famous. And before we ever put a, a song out, we got dropped. And we were all at that time, we were all listening like the mid nineties. We were all listening to Garth and Tim and like, like that mid nineties country that I freaking love. So we all yeah. loved it. And we're like, all right, we didn't, we didn't really feel good about this anyway. Let's move to Nashville. So when I moved to Nashville, I played in the symphony. I played on orchestras, uh, like recordings on orchestras. Like I played on everything from Matchbox 20 records to, you know, Billy Gilman's Christmas record in the orchestra. So like I was an orchestra player and the band was going to hire a fiddle player. And I was like, no, that's stupid. I mean, it, it's the same instrument. It's just a different approach. So my introduction to fiddle was not until much later in life. And what I did is I took old rock records and figured out like, what makes a great guitar solo? And that was always my objective was if I could play a great guitar solo on a fiddle, my, my mindset was there's already a thousand 10 year old kids that can play Devil Went Down to Georgia or Orange Blossom Special better than I can. So what can I do that makes me different? And that was my, my mindset from the beginning. So it, it was funny that I didn't set out uh, to be a, a fiddle player. My, my influence that I always thought of, my first concert was Kid Row and Bon Jovi. Um, I was an 80s hair metal kid when I was a little kid. And I'll never forget two things. I don't know. I'll, I'll paraphrase this because the language constraint. But I'll never forget Seattle. Uh, the uh, the beginning of the show. Sebastian Bach, the lead singer of Skid Row, came out and he said we were in Portland, Maine, Scarborough, Maine, and he said, "Hello, Seattle, Washington, or wherever the f we are." And the crowd just started mercilessly booing him because he didn't know what city <laughs> was in. And then I remember the beginning of the show. Um, when the show started, they opened with Lay Your Hands on Me, Bon Jovi did. And there was this, uh, there was what I now know is called a toaster, a thing that sits below the stage that when it pops up, it pops you up like a piece of toast. You land on stage and that's how you right. start with the smoke everywhere. I was a little kid watching that and I said, holy cow, that is way cooler than anything <laughs> I do. And that was like the biggest, that was the transformative moment for me. And when we were lucky enough to have a ton of success with the band and you know, we would have the, we, our busiest year, I was gone 300 days. We played 250 shows. And when you're on your 250th show playing if I die young and you don't want to, cause that's real. Every time that happened, I just sat back and thought, man, there's some 11 year old kid here. Maybe he can have his Richie Sambora moment. If I can do that, then I've done my job. So that was my biggest influence into playing live was Richie Sambora. As strange as that awesome. sounds for a country guy. That, that goes into my next question. What's your uh, strangest uh, fan interaction like? One of you, you you thought about the end of the day, like what the hell just happened, man? So I think the first day, the first day I ever played with Phil Vassar, I remember I walked out and somebody introduced herself to me, and she's like, "Hey, this is my eighty sixth show," and I was like, "Eighty? You've seen eighty six times? Like that was that was funny to me. I always think of that. But the the craziest one to me was when the Band Perry was in. Um, we were in the UK and we did a, a a whole European tour, and we were playing. I think it was Glasgow, some, somewhere over there. And the funny thing is we were playing like two doors down from Imagine Dragons. And it turned out they were fans of the music we had out. We were fans of the music that they had out. So we, we sort of became friends in that moment. And I remember the day that I, we were playing, we, we went to the Imagine Dragons show the night before. So then I was talking to Platzman, their drummer. And we were walking up and down the street the next day. And we got in lunch. It's like five or six hours before we were going to play in Glasgow. And there were like half a dozen teenage early 20s girls that had they were from the states and they'd seen the show probably 20 times that tour in america and they were sitting outside the door waiting to get in and i just kept looking around thinking my god i couldn't afford to bring myself to glasgow right now if i wanted to to see my own show how the hell did they get over here so that, that that's always the surreal fan moment to me when you look around and think where, where like where did, what lottery did they win that they are hanging out in scotland to see the band Perry? 
that uh, you mentioned that that mid '90s country, uh, Jason. I, I call that, and this this isn't meant to be disparaging because I hey, I've got Brooks and Dunn on my T-shirt right now. Uh, yeah. You know, like I, but the the I call it grocery store country because mm. like you, okay, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Reba McIntyre, Travis Tritt, Joe Diffie. Uh, uh, Ricky Skaggs, like, like that, that mid nineties, Garth Brooks, obviously Alan Jackson, Brooks and Dunn, like those, I just remember my mom shopping at the Winn-Dixie and like hearing all those songs, you know, uh, uh, Patty Loveless, um, you know, just, I, I, I love that, love that era of country music. Look, A, that era of country music was amazing, but B, uh, I'll, I'll reveal like a little hidden secret of Nashville. There's a shock game. A lot of people play at the airport, the Nashville airport. Like when you get over there early and you're waiting for your opera, like you're waiting for your flight. Cause you always, when you're touring, you're traveling with 40 people in your group. You got to get to the airport stupid early to check all your gear. So a lot of times you'll sit at the bar in the airport or the restaurant in the airport. And the shock game is anytime somebody comes on that you've played a show with anywhere, uh -huh. you got to take a drink. And it is amazing. <laughs> like you mentioned the, the restaurant game, there are certain bars. You do the same thing when you're on the road. If you end up out at like a, a country bar that you know has like a line dancing and everything, you just, you line them up and you put them back. You're like, let's go. If you've ever played a show <laughs> with that artist, you have to drink. So uh, it, it gets, a, if, once you've gotten a few years into your run, it gets uh, it gets hard on your liver. I, I bet it does. I bet it does. All right, we're going to keep it moving here. Uh, Mike Ryan fan account is up next. He's got a Sarah Spain question. I hope he doesn't get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, big news with you guys reuniting. Um, I just kind of wanted to know more about, you know, what's it like to work with her? Um, she just seems like she's the perfect combination of nice and, and easy to get along with, but at the same time, you know, super productive you know, super on top of things. So I just kind of wanted to know on the other side of the, you know, the deal, how, how, you know, what's it like to, to be her co-host? That's a great question. Sarah is one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. One of the most opinionated people I've ever worked with in a good way and not afraid to tackle anything. And I think, you know, to be not, not even just being cheesy, but I think one of the reasons that I'm excited to come back to the show is that I'm better at radio today than I was when we started Spain and Fitz. I think, one of the things that Sarah really taught me when I, when we were combined for the first time, we didn't know each other. Well, we'd worked together a little bit here and there. We didn't know each other that well, but we sort of knew stylistically, like everybody knew that I'm a high energy kind of goofy guy. Like to have fun. I believe in the importance of entertainment and Sarah believes in the importance of using your microphone for, you know, speaking your truth. And when we first started, while that was never a conflict for us because we respect each other a lot, I think there was a, a moment for me where I was less comfortable with some of the difficult conversations. However, after a year with her on Spain and Fitz, I think there were landmark moments. I mean, taking over first take your take this year, I had to be on air the day after Kobe died, which was an incredibly difficult day for me. And I handled that better because of Sarah. I, I hosted the daily of the podcast the night the NBA shut down. I hosted that better because I worked with Sarah. So when you talk about who Sarah is, she's somebody that, you can't just say, you don't say no to Sarah. You say no because, and I, I respect the hell out of that. Like you don't, you don't come in and say, we're not, I, I'm, no, I don't want to talk about that. You come in and, and you, you challenge thought. And that's the thing that I think really makes her layered as a host, because I'll tell you the easiest thing in the world, the easiest thing to do in the world is come in every day, read ESPN.com for three minutes and then say, okay, I got to take that's that, that's not going to be interesting after, after a while. What makes Dan spectacular is that he's got the perfect balance with 
uh, all the rest of the guys where he can be thoughtful and he can be thought provoking and the rest of the guys can poke and prod in some of that world, but then they can also bring it back to some level of levity. What made Golik, uh, you know, I think so incredible radio we talked about earlier was his ability to come in in the mornings and really brighten whatever the topic was. When you start talking about what makes Sarah great, what makes Sarah great is that in one show, you will hear the, the biggest sports story of the night. You'll also hear something you didn't even know was going on, and you'll, in eight minutes, get a hell of a lot smarter on it. So I think what that means for me is that it means that I can't ever be lazy because, you know, Sarah's smarter than I am, and she's better at this than I am. So it's important for me to make sure that I'm prepared every single damn day to make sure that I can, I can hold my own with every conversation. So in that sense, like I said, she's made me a lot better. It's also 7 to 9 p.m. is a uniquely challenging time slot. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. When you get to 7 o'clock at night, there's nothing I can tell you about what happened yesterday that you haven't already heard. So you heard the morning show tell you something about it. You heard Dan when he wants to tell you something about it. But then when you get to the afternoon slots, I mean, everybody's sort of giving you a take somewhere. So how do you at night set the table for what's going to happen that night also react to the biggest stories, but make people think. And that's what Sarah is particularly gifted at. So, you know, the fact that she and I can joke about movies or Saturday Night Live, which we do, and we have a lot in common on some of the goofiest parts of our life, but we can also have really meaningful conversations about what's going on in the world today. I think that's what makes that show, what made that show good in the first iteration. And my ability to handle it more now and be better in that is going to make it better in the second iteration. And that is not just coke speak. That's just if anybody listens to me for two seconds, you know I'm as genuine and real as I could be. That's real. I, I think we'll be a better show because I'm better for her. I think it was a real answer, but also I think she'll like that answer. I think I think you just you scored some points with that. Good job, Fitz. Well, well I'm not stupid. <laughs> I mean, come on. Now. Right. Exactly. I mean, it, exactly. <laughs> my name should be first because her name was first the first time. It was Spain uh-huh. and Fitz the first time to differentiate the sequel. It should hey, be. Hey, she's been Spain. she's been carrying the show since you've been gone. Okay. That like, is fair. She, that, yeah. <laughs> that is fair. Or we could do Jason and Sarah and then call it uh-huh. Jazz. I don't know. <laughs> this is why they don't let me name anything. I don't get to I was name about bands. To say, I don't get to you, name shows. Okay, stay stay in your lane. You, you're yeah. doing good at what you do. Uh, let's leave Thank the naming you. up to the creative department. Okay, uh, let's see. Who is up next? Uh, let's see. Uh, Steve, you are up next. You've got another musician question. Uh, well, a musician question and a sports question. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, for first, as someone who's been to Nashville and lives in Bristol, I just want to say I apologize that you have to come to Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> Very different places. They are different. That is, you know, I will say I'm I'm answering all these things long. By the way, I have all the time, so nobody will get t- cut off. Uh, but I I actually like Bristol more than a lot of people. I, I I'm a fan, but I think it's because my expectations have been lowered by hearing about what a trash heap it was, and it turns out you know Connecticut's not terrible. All right, well, I appreciate that. So, so my question is basically out of musicians that you uh, that you know and worked with, if you can pick three that would be the best at becoming a professional baseball, basketball, and football player, or the worst. Oh wow, okay, that's a good question. So uh, another another secret of the road: artist rules are real, and what that means is like a lot of times artists sit there and talk about how good they're going to be at basketball, and then you watch them play, and they're terrible, and you can't even foul them because they they're sensitive. Uh, I did get into a heated battle on the on the court at one point when we were on the Blake Shelton tour. I went up for a rebound. I accidentally elbowed Blake in the process. He got very upset, very upset. So, uh, and he is a large man. So I did the smart thing as the the little fiddle player on the opening act. I walked away. 
I just walked away and stayed hidden for a day. Um, that would actually Kane Brown is a talented basketball player. Uh, so I think he, he'd be capable uh, of, of going out there and throwing down. Most would not. And again, I'll tell this, I'll tell this story because you know, what's he going to do? He's, he's more famous than I'll ever be. Blake, I'll go back to <laughs> Blake was big into like, I love fantasy football and I'm an, I'm a Cardinals fan through and through. And then that year we were out with him. I have it from a very good source on his tour that in the fantasy football draft, he drafted a quarterback that hadn't played for the Cardinals in like five years. So I think a lot of guys say they're fans, but mm, no. And, <laughs> you know, the athleticism, the athleticism is hit and miss. I, I guess Chesney would like to think he could, but he's too small. I mean, he's, like Chesney makes me look like Andre the Giant. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm out on Chesney. I think Kane might be the only one of us that that's actually at least uh, fairly capable of playing. There's a couple of new acts I've heard are good, but I haven't seen him play. It's a good question. Very good question. Thank you, Steve. All right. Uh, next up, we have Cody Cavalry. He's got a, a little mini lightning round session for you. Woo! Go ahead. Cody All right. Cavalry. I'll go. I'll go as fast as I can. I'm long winded. <laughs> What's up, Fitz? This is Drake. Um, let me start off by saying, man, you're you're one of my favorite talents at ESPN. Um, I love your love your vibe, love your positivity, um, your outlook on everything. Uh, so so keep doing what you're doing. Um, oh, so I got uh, three little topics for you. Um, first one is a little Trey Wingo-esque power ranking um, on your home chore slash to-do list. So you can either go one to three, three to one. They are dishes, laundry, and sweeping slash mopping. Wow. Okay. Um, sweeping slash mopping, number three. Uh, dishes, number two. Uh, laundry, number one. But I will say two, a couple of quick things. Um, when I was in sixth grade, my mom walked me down to the basement and said, here's the washing machine. Here's the dryer. Don't bother me with that. And then we walked upstairs and she said, here's how you make a grilled cheese sandwich. We're good. You're done. Okay. So I grew up very <laughs> like, you know, don't ask mom for a snack. Like I grew up very independent. So my friends to this day mock me because while we're standing around having a conversation, I'm the person that will pull out the cleaner and just start cleaning the kitchen counter while we're doing it. So I'm actually impressively like, uh, knowing that I spend 99% of my time in Connecticut uh, by myself. If you walked in, you would think that like, that you would definitely think that it wasn't just a guy that works 20 hours uh, living here. So uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely a clean freak. So I'll, I'll take, I'll, but I'll take him in that order. I do dishes every night too. I run the dishwasher every night, unloaded every day. I'm such a creature of routine. It's really scary. <laughs> I hear you. All right. No, uh, number two. Um, so the, the question I have is, is everyone at ESPN low-key jealous of the Levitard show gigs? <laughs> Look, I, we all – you hear the jokes about the cool kids. There are certain people that, like, are I, – I mean, I, I'm still willing to admit when I, I'm starstruck by stuff. When I got first take, your take announced, and, and that was going to be on the day lineup, Stugatz left me a message that I still have on my phone because I was like, man – just the fact that Stugatz even took the time to call me. Yeah, like there are certain certain groups that are family. And that's where I think you see, you know, pockets at ESPN. And, and I got to say, people have been so incredible at the company in ways I never expected, in ways I didn't see in music. Everybody's so gracious on campus. It's almost creepy. But, you know, like there, there's a, a real love of when you look at what the way Levitar does things and the way they're, that whole crew is just, they're free to be them. And that's, that's really difficult to do sometimes. So yeah, I think, you know, there's, there's a moment where I believe me, I've sent plenty of texts of like, what's a guy got to do to get in with the, the, the Dan crew? Uh, still no, no response to that text, but someday it'll happen. Oh. Yeah. 
I hear. So kind of to piggyback that question, who, uh, who in the Levitar crew are you closest with? Well, if you're taking outside, I mean, if you're taking the entire, like, outside friends and family, I mean, obviously Sarah and I have been close. Uh, even after our show together ended, we, we talk all the time. So uh, Sarah is close. Stugatz is somebody that uh, I lean to a lot for advice. Like, you, it's funny because Stugatz, the person is hysterical on air, and he's the same off air. I mean, he's Stugatz. But you also want to talk about one of the smartest people and one of the most business savvy people, like somebody that understands this entire path. And I think the number of times that I've had Stu reach out to me and obviously Stu and I, uh, unfortunately, we connected a little bit uh, when I first started with the company because we had him on Go Look at Wingo when I was on after the shooting in his area. Um, and having just gone through that, I think with country music dealing with it in Las Vegas and you know having so many of my friends impacted that were on that stage, that night, he and I found a common bond in tragedy. Uh, but I think what's incredible is that through that process of even barely knowing each other, we got to know each other. And, you know, Stu's the type of person that when you just don't know what to do, you call Stu Gatz and he will figure it out. And that's I think that's a, a real testament to who he is as a man. I got you. So last last topic, uh, one one male, one female who are, in your opinion, are the most underrated talents at ESPN. Mina Kimes is always going to be my female, even though she's getting all the shine in the world. Man, Mina Kimes is a – I've worked that draft with her. And I'm telling you, there is nobody that's on linear TV that does more homework, that knows more. I think the most unfortunate thing that happened about the announcement of uh, the new NFL live show is that it was termed as Mina Kimes joins as a new NFL analyst. She's been an NFL analyst on social media and on digital shows for years. She is a damn rock star. And – uh, she's incredibly, incredibly intelligent, incredibly smart, incredibly driven. She is uh, absolutely awe-inspiring. If I'm going to say somebody else that I think is underrated, and this is probably also a little bit of a surprise answer because he has such a huge platform. Kevin Nagandi is one of the most versatile people and uh, one of the people that, you know, when I first came to campus, I got the advice of just sit in the calf, like have a coffee in the cafeteria at Bristol and be around and make sure people see your face and get to know people. I emailed Kevin after one or two shows with Sarah and said, Hey, I'm brand new. I don't know anybody. I don't know anything. Can I get coffee with you? And he came in and we sat down for hours and it was, it is amazing to me the number of times that Nagandi will reach out and say, Hey, try a little of this, try a little of that. And I watched Nagandi on college football because as great as I think Nagandi and, and Reese, you know, you're talking about guys that I do so much of that work in the college scape on digital. I learn from those guys by watching those guys that are doing it at the highest level. Nagandi should be spoken of in the same breath as SVP. He's, he's that talented and he means that much to the company. All right. Thank you. Those are fantastic answers. Uh, obviously uh, we're all team Mina around here. Um, oh, yeah. You know, uh, as so many talents at, uh, at ESPN, she owes everything to Stu Gatz. Uh, teaching her to hot take, uh, you know, in the moment and stuff. So um, we're glad to see that's paying dividends for her. And that will conclude part one of Jason Fitz. As always, this is my crying fan account. Stay tuned for part two coming soon. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon 
versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.